right. Thank you for joining us today. So today I have a guest on my uh, podcast, Dr. Caitlin Turnus. Uh, she came to Regent University to give a talk on compassion fatigue and burnout. And I thought uh, she'd be a great guest to have to talk about those things. Um, but first, let's get to know her a little bit. So uh, first, Dr. Turnus, thank you for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Good. I'm excited to have you here. Um, can you kind of start with a little bit of your maybe like upbringing and what got you interested in psychology? Okay, so you want me to go way back? Way back. Way back. Okay, <laughs> sure. So I actually, let's see, I initially when I was in high school had thought I wanted to do physical therapy. Um, and then I kind of looked at the course load and was less interested in that at the time. <laughs> um, but, but basically my senior year of high school, um, I'm from a tiny little town in Ohio and uh, we didn't have a lot of AP courses uh, moving here to a bigger city. There's like dozens of them. I think we had a total of like six, but AP psychology was one of them. And so I took my senior year at AP psychology um, with a teacher that was just really dynamic, really engaging. I found it really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so that was simultaneously happening at the same time as um, I was part of a sort of spinoff of a Big Brothers, Big Sisters program, huh. um, which for a tiny little town, for whatever reason, we actually had a residential facility for kids who um, had significant behavior or mental health issues or whose families just couldn't take care of them anymore. And so hmm. there was this program where high schoolers would sort of be paired with um, some of the residents out there month we would go and have like a communal dinner and once a month you'd go out and just spend time with them like on a weekend or you know things like that yeah and so while I was kind of going through this psychology course um I was paired for this big brothers big sisters program and I got paired <clears throat> with the girl that everyone at the time was I don't want to be paired with her <laughs> which <laughs> I mean just kind of in everyone's initial reaction yeah, you know yeah. um and I got paired with her and it was just a wild journey like she was just um really incredible and really interesting and obviously just she was at a residential facility so also had some just really um tragic things that have happened mm. in her. and so I did even though it was challenging I did just really enjoy getting to sort of live a little bit of life with her. Um, and so that coupled with my class, I was like, I wanna be able to do a little bit more than that. Um, <clears throat> and so that kind of got me interested in shifting my trajectory a little bit. And then just all throughout college, just having different experiences that just sort of solidified that this is the way, this is the way wow. I'm going, so. So you were interested in maybe the child aspect of psychology from the get-go? Yes, yeah, oh. I kind of went into it knowing I wanna do child stuff, child and family stuff. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On my side of things, it's like, I have, I still have no idea. So I kind of, in a way, envy that, that mm -hmm. path where it's just, I come in knowing what I'm going to do and I gear my whole education toward one, one thing. Mm. Yeah. There's pros and cons to both, right? Mm, like it yeah. was a little grounding to know, okay, this is what I want. So these are the steps I'm going to take to get there. Yeah. And I think in some ways, it can hold some of my experiences. So I also, when I give, you know, first years, um, I go and talk to the first years and kind of give them advice or, you know, ideas for what maybe they could do if they want to be a child psychologist. I always emphasize do, you know, get your child experience. You need mm -hmm. that to get an internship and to specialize in all of that, but like, don't also get other experiences, you know, go somewhere because you want inpatient experience 
here. You want the kind of setting that, you know, even if it's with adults um, and just to kind of be well-rounded because mm. kids grow up to be adults. You're going to work with adults who care for kids. You know, it's, it's just all yeah. a good experience. So yeah. It's yeah. I, um, my first year of practica, I only worked with adults. And then this past year I've had mostly child clients oh, and I, I didn't really think I wanted to do child, uh, child work, but working with the child clients has been so in many ways, refreshing and reinvigorating and is very wholesome in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. What have you liked about it? Can I ask um, questions? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I remember one, one thing that stands out uh, in particular, I remember a day where I was kind of not in the best mood and I wanted to, it was one of those days where you kind of help your clients kind of cancel. So you can just wrap <laughs> up and go home early. Uh-huh. And, um, and they showed up and one of the, I was meeting with the, my eight-year-old client and then the client's mother and the mother was like, Oh, do you want to tell Mr. Daniel what, what you told me on the way here? And my client said, uh, you know, this day of the week is my new, my favorite day of the week, because that com- that means I get to come see you. Aww. And then I just, I was just like, man, how dare I want to, want to just have them cancel and go home early when they, when I'm such a big part of what they're going through right now, you know? Mm-hmm. So things like that, things like that, yeah. that I don't, maybe adults won't tell you just straight up, just like in a very direct and sincere way is kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, I love yeah. that. There's just like that innocence about it, you know, Yeah, yeah and especially because they're not choosing to go there. Someone's bringing them. So when you have a kid who sort of lets you know, like, yeah, I, my mom's bringing me here, but I'm really like, I love coming, <laughs> you know, like, that's yeah, exactly. Cool too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And so why did you see out of all of the colleges you went through Regent university? Why, why Regent? Oh yeah. Good question. So, um, I had applied all over and for all different programs. I I knew I wanted to do, you know, go to grad school. Um, you kind of have to, if you want to do anything with, you know, counseling or things like that. So I I knew that much, um, in undergrad, I just wasn't sure. Do I want to do licensed clinical social work or licensed professional counselor or PhD or PsyD? And, um, there's just so many options. And, uh, I don't feel like I had, um, I maybe did not do enough research ahead of time to like fully understand like what all those differences would be. But so essentially I applied all over to lots of different things. Um, interviewed all over at lots of different programs. Um, Regent was actually sort of a last minute. uh, It popped. I don't even remember how I found it. It kind of popped up, was not on my radar. And I was like, it's at the beach. (laughs) Um, Sounds good. (laughs) Um, And I did think that the the spiritual integration part was interesting. I hadn't applied to any other programs like that. And just, you know, growing up Christian and having that be an important part of kind of my identity and my worldview, I just thought, well, I should look into this since I wasn't really even aware that that was a huge option at the time. So that was really neat. Um, But then when I interviewed, um, you know, they knew that I was interested in child stuff. So for one of my one-on-one interviews, they paired me with a child psychologist professor at the time. And so this is kind of a long story, but he, uh, when we were interviewing, we were just kind of chatting and it just came really naturally. And he saw that I was from Toledo. I went to the university of Toledo for undergrad, um, and that I had been to Haiti on a mission trip. And so he was kind of asking me about, um, if I'm familiar with, um, like child trafficking or commercial sexual exploitation Mm. of children as it's more well known now. Um, and I was like, actually I am. 
So Toledo is a, at the time was one of the top cities where this was happening or kids were being brought through. Mm. And so, you know, I was 22 an undergrad and was getting involved in all of that. Did the whole, like, there was a movement where you wore a dress for a whole month, the same dress for the whole month, like raise awareness of these things. Um, and so that was definitely something that I was interested in, that I had done some advocacy and like worked with um, in Toledo. Um, he's like, well, that's really cool because I just got a grant to go to Haiti and train Haitian clinicians in a trauma-focused treatment for kids who have been trafficked. Wow. Um, and so I said, that's wild. <laughs> I'm super interested in that. Um it just sounded like such an incredible opportunity. So um, I had that conversation. I still was kind of debating, um, but even like he, you know, called and followed up a couple of times and helped me think through things um, as almost like a mentor of, mm. okay, well, this is what you could do if you went to a program like this or this degree. And, and so kind of all of that um, just led me to, you know, I think this could be um, a really cool research team to be a part of. This could be a really good opportunity. Um, so then I came down. Did you get to go on the on the on the research trip? Oh mm-hmm. man, what a during it was wild. It was so good. During university? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was I was a first year. And I mean, I, it legitimately was just out of the goodness of like everyone's hearts that there was another, uh, I had a cohort mate that went as well. So the two of us went huh. and yeah, we, we were not that helpful. Like we haven't <laughs> been trained in anything yet. You know, I think it was, we had maybe one semester under our belts, hadn't seen any clients um, and just got to be there and just assist as much as we could, you know, and, and just learn and take it all in. Um, and so, yeah, that wow. was a really special trip. It was really cool. That's really cool. How long were you there? Uh, at this point, oh, okay. uh, just a, it, it wasn't like a super long trip, uh, okay. maybe like four to five days or something like that. Oh. Man, I wish that should be uh, offered every year, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And we so another did... one, sorry, with, um, I didn't go on this one. I, I trained some of the people to go on this one, but they went to the Philippines and did something very similar with like oh. a facility out there. So yeah, there's just some cool opportunities yeah. that, that were going on at that time. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, how, what was uh, your, let's see, where did you do internship? I did my internship up in Newark, New Jersey. And so I was at the Rutgers University Behavioral Health Campus. Oh, okay. Um, up there. So they have um, like a medical, uh, like a hospital, university hospital and medical campus and stuff up there. Oh. So I was at their outpatient psychiatric facility. Oh, cool, cool. Mm-hmm. And you did your postdoc there as well? No, so I actually did my fellowship where I'm at now. So I just did my internship oh. at Rutgers, and then I came back here to the Child Advocacy Center, okay. um, did my fellowship, and then there was an opening, so I was able to stay on as okay. a, a staff psychologist. We'll get there in a sec. Uh, so how was, how was the internship at Rutgers? Oh, that was the biggest growth year of my life, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Uh, so yeah, I guess kind of backing up a little bit on internship interviews, um, you definitely want to get a sense for, and I try to get a sense for just like workload because you're coming out of four Mm. years of grad school where you're probably a little burned out already. You're used to working just too many hours. Um, and so I really wanted to get a feel for that balance between 
I still wanted it to be a really good training year Mm. and like, what else could it look like? So I was definitely at some internship sites where there was a couple people, you know, who said, I come, I do my 40 hours, I see my patients and I leave. Mm. Um, It's much more like just kind of being in private practice. Um, And I just was, I was less interested in that because I felt like this is my last opportunity to really Uh. get like mentored and trained. And so I didn't quite want that. And so Rutgers was definitely one where they were like, you will work and you will learn a lot. Um, (laughs) So I took a gamble. (laughs) I ranked them really high. (laughs) Um, It was also my only, they did a group interview. There was a very... um, psychodynamic pole there, which was interesting because I am not Uh (laughs) um, psychodynamic, but I just liked that I'd be exposed to some, there was a very eclectic group of like, you know, um, all the supervisors were very eclectic in their orientation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The interview was very, um, uh, a little bit more psychodynamic focused. Like I said, that group interview where they just watch you. They're just like, here's your questions. (laughs) Go. And you're like, oh gosh. (laughs) And then, uh, my interview with the, I was the only one who interviewed with the director of the program, which at the time, all of my automatic thoughts were just running wild. Yeah. <laughs> like it was full of cognitive distortions about why I got paired. <laughs> and he was very psychodynamic. And um, so the interview was like, I don't know, but I just really had like a good feeling about it. So anyway, I ranked there and it was, it was a tough year. There's just a lot, um, but Rick is one of the just most violent cities in the country. There's just a lot going on there. And Mm. and so uh, being able to sort of be there, be trained in that, like get to know those people in that community um, was really hard, but, but really, really good for Mm. me and definitely kind of solidified um, that that's sort of the environments and, and the presenting problems and populations and stuff that I enjoy coming alongside of and working with. So and um, what is that? Say that again. Yeah. What is the type of presenting problems and populations that you enjoy working with? Mm, so right now, everyone that I see has experienced trauma of some kind. Okay. And, and that was definitely prevalent up there. So a lot of um, trauma, but also just a lot of, you know, systemic things going on mm. um, where you have to deal with just a lot of systemic issues, whether that's a family system or, you know, the school or the community or, you know, whatever might be happening and all those different layers. Um, And so there would just be a lot of difficult family dynamics or system dynamics that came through the door along with just a very trauma soaked environment. So, you know, so much of this is coming out of that, that multi-generational trauma that we can Mm. see. Um, And so there was also just a lot of anxiety that just looked like anxiety, but you're like, underneath, that's not what's happening here. Uh, Uh, That that's coming from something. Um, And then a lot of behavior problems. So a lot of kids that were getting kicked out of schools or needed partial hospitalization. And so they sort of got stigmatized um, and put into our programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so really working with, uh, again, the family system, the school system and things like that for kids that were having significant behavior problems, that was obviously a huge issue. Um, But given the environment or the, you know, the things that were going on, it also made a lot of sense. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who she's about to go on internship to Boys Town. Oh, uh-huh. uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And you were mentioning uh, residential programs earlier, and I had never really knew, known much about residential programs. Um, mm-hmm. But is is that something that you'd like to uh, do, like work with again one day? Or do you see yourself working um, for more of like institutions long term or? practice one day where where are you there 
Yeah, so, and I've actually never worked with um, residential specifically. So oh. I did more, um, I did do some like, hospital inpatient consultation liaison, but then we had partial programs. So partial hospitalization where the kids would come for like three hours a day after school and then go home and, and be with their families. So I don't actually have like, they live their residential experience. That is a oh. whole other ball game. Um, that's not as something that I'm as quite as interested in. Yeah. It's a very different setting, a very different environment. Obviously you take the fam, they still have family sessions, but they're not living with the family. So it's just a different dynamic mm. that's going on. Uh-huh. Very important work. Um, <clears throat> so I do, I see myself more um, continuing on in, a, in an outpatient um, situation. Uh, and I honestly see myself staying in kind of the child advocacy center world um, mm. moving forward. I have less interest in private practice. I like the multidisciplinary, um, you know, being in, involved with a, a large team, um, you know, a system of care for the kids yeah. and the families and yeah. uh, being a little bit more engaged in like trainings and, and things like that. So I, yeah. do, I do like those systems a little bit more. Can you tell us about the child advocacy centers? Sure. So uh, child advocacy centers, there's a national accrediting body. So National Children's Alliance Hmm. is the accrediting body. So there's child advocacy centers across the country. Um, Ours happens to be affiliated with the hospital. So some are kind of under the umbrella of a hospital. Some are just standalone nonprofit child advocacy centers. Hmm. Um, But they were created for... I think the best way to start here. So the child advocacy centers, we have multidisciplinary partners like within the centers and then multidisciplinary partners within the community. And so they were really created for when there's allegations of some sort of abuse or neglect um, that when the kid discloses uh, law enforcement, child protective services, FBI, Homeland Security, whatever kind of the nature of the, of the um, issue might be, can call our center, refer the case in, and we have specially trained child forensic interviewers so that the kid can come be in a little bit more child-friendly environment instead of like mm-hmm. the police station and, and do it with people who are truly trained to work just with kids, um, kind of meet them where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they can come in and that's typically how kids come to us. There's some other routes that they get to us, but that's definitely the majority of the time they're coming in that way. So they can have forensic interviewers. Um, There's case managers here, you know, family advocates that kind of help facilitate that process, make sure the family is getting what they need through that, um, get them to a medical. We have, we have a medical team here. So they'll see them again, more for making sure everything's okay after, you know, abuse has happened. you know, checking in on, on, on those things. Um, we also have kind of a forensic medical um, piece of that where they do more evaluations and, and evidence gathering. And then we also have our mental health side of things too. So then once they usually again, get one or both of those services, um, they get a screener and it might say, hey, it does seem like there might be some trauma related stuff going on. Let's get you in for more of a, of a full intake and see um, what the kid might need on that. And so we are super fortunate that we have all of that in-house that can look different depending on the size of the CAC. Sometimes they might contract out for mental health care if they don't have that in-house or contract out for medical care. Um, But at the core is kind of the investigative piece, Hmm. partnering with with those multidisciplinary investigative agencies and making sure kids don't fall through the cracks when these things happen. Yeah. That sounds like a really neat way to do it, a really neat program. Um, 
also it sounds like some very heavy work right yeah um so you specifically you when they let's say there's like all oh, this there's maybe some trauma here let's get them more of a um extensive interview type style do you do the like a diagnostic interview and then how long do you typically get to see the client for therapy so uh, when they come for mental health services, our intake is just a very standardized. Mm. So we kind of just go through. Yes, uh, it's not a um, structured diagnostic interview like the case ads or the skit or something like that. It's just we kind of go through all the different categories of like biopsychosocial uh-huh. stuff, you, you know, our interview forum and gather all of that. And then we also use standardized measures. So depending on the age of the kid, both the kid and the parent, um, we pair usually pair with we have we call them assessment specialists. And so they um, make sure that the, the kid and the parent get, fill out the forms that, that they need, the questionnaires that they need and score those. And so we use just a couple of te- you know, pieces of testing data and our clinical interview um, to then yes, give a preliminary diagnosis, try to get a, a good picture of what's going on and what kind of treatment might be most helpful. Obviously that's a one-time meeting. So those can be working disease like working treatment plans but we get a pretty good idea of it since it is pretty extensive Um, and so if they we only do the trauma work so that's the 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 one hold back and that's also why we do screening um because if a kid if we kind of already know that they're not going to need trauma treatment we don't want to do a whole intake and put them through that whole process Uh Um, we'd rather just refer them somewhere else that can work with them on anxiety or medication management or depression or whatever that might be Um, So we do occasionally then after the intake, you know, it does seem like actually what they need is something separate. So we might still have to refer out, but typically if they're, um, you know, we do see that there's trauma symptoms, there's some sort of trauma related diagnosis that comes out of that, um, then they'll start right away with us for therapy. And we do, again, because of all the accreditation standards, um, we have a, a very certain set of like treatments that we use with them. So we do um, trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy. So that can be used with three to 18. And so there's just an incredible amount of, you know, evidence base behind that. So that's why we've selected that. We've all been trained and certified and, and all of that in TFCBT. And so that's one of, that's probably half of my caseload is TFCBT clients. Um, but then we also do, um, parent-child interact. And so I guess with TFCBT, the length of time can range. We do weekly appointments. So they come same time, same day, every week. Um, and those can run anywhere, honestly, from 12 to 30 sessions. So okay. to Fidelity, I think they've changed it a couple of times, but I think it's like 16 to 20-ish. Um, and I think it just depends on the complexity of the case. Um, you know, if it's a complex trauma history versus a one-time event versus the child's individual, uh, you know, resilience factors versus the family dynamic, all of that. So it does range, but it is meant to ultimately be what would be considered more like short-term therapy. So we're not looking to see kids or, or teens for like years and years. The goal is that we address the trauma symptoms. We work through things that can come out of that with the family and the kid and then they're able to move on. Um, and then we do have a couple other, like an acute trauma treatment. If we catch, you know, the trauma right away, we can use that. And that, that is short term. So that's supposed to be six to eight sessions, child and family traumatic stress intervention. Hmm. And then we do parent child interaction therapy and that's for three to six year olds. And that is a behavior management 
um, system, but it's very, it starts off very relational based, very like positive attending, um, using the relationship and positive attention to start to address things and then brings in more of that structure, consistency, predictability with like consequences and, and things like that. And that's for three to six year olds. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. When it, with the uh, TFCBT more of like, um, maybe not super manualized, but more of like a standard, uh, you know, maybe 16 to 20 sessions, or you said it could vary. Have you ever had um, clients that maybe it doesn't seem that they've worked through the trauma and that um, maybe anticipated progression or time frame? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I've never done, I've never had clients that I, I've never been trained in TFCBT or done more of like that. So I was just curious, like what, um, what does that look like? And then what are you able to do as a result? Sure. So yeah, I guess just a little snippet of TFCBT. Um, it is cognitive behavior therapy based with mm-hmm. that trauma focus. So there's an element of learning, uh, you know, a lot of the CBT skills that you would use for lots of other, um, presenting problems. And then there's an, you know, the trauma focus and also the exposure element. So the first phase, um, they actually use the acronym practice, but the first phase, the PRAC um, is considered the stabilization phase. So they come in, they, after the intake of getting, you know, psychoeducation on uh, what is trauma, you know, who experiences this, how might they think, feel, react, to experiencing a trauma just to kind of start to normalize their experience because a lot of times both kids and families are coming in and they're just like just shocked from everything you know Uh because also by the time they get to us they've talked to detectives to cps potentially to lawyers to you know forensic interviewers to all these things and then like then they have to deal with the aftermath of all of that yeah um and so that's when we get them (laughs) and so you want to just kind of give them space to ask questions, start to normalize, um, and kind of shed light on, on this experience that no one really prepares you for and no one should have to go through. Uh-huh. Um, and so then the R is that relaxation piece. So really focusing in on not just coping skills, um, which are also good, but that, you know, physiological relaxation, since we know trauma just shoots that, you know, mm. stress response cycle up. So we really want them to learn to be um, able to regulate their physiological responses as much as possible. And then the A is going to be that affective expression and modulation. And that one is really about starting to identify emotions, learning how to express them in, in healthy ways, how that ties in with their physiological response, mm. um, how to, you know, increase positive emotions if, you know, that, uh, PTSD criteria of, you know, negative alterations and like world view of self, um, affect experiences, you know, things like that. Um, we want to make sure that they're, um, kind of relearning how to have positive emotions and things if that's one of their symptoms. Um, and then the C is for cognitive coping and restructuring. And so that's where you really kind of tie together that whole cognitive triangle. So mm-hmm. our thoughts, you know, impact the way we, we feel and the way that we um, behave then. And so you're kind of bringing that all together and making sure they have kind of all those basic skills mm-hmm. and that they're stabilized because obviously trauma can be very unstabilizing. And so before we sort of dive into talking more specifically about their trauma is we want to know that they are equipped to handle that and do that in a kind of a calm and safe body. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and all throughout you are using gradual exposure. So we're not just, you know, avoiding the topic of the trauma and then bam, like, okay, you have the skills, let's talk. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, just slowly like sprinkling that in along the way. So that when we do get to the, okay, let's talk more in depth, um, they're like really ready for it. Hmm. So, and so that's the piece that can really look a lot different for a lot of different people um, because you know, stabilizing one kid who maybe has a ton of protective factors, a ton of resilience factors, um, you know, really insightful, all these things may truly be like a week of psychoed, a week of relaxation, a week of this. And then you're like, okay, I think you're ready. Mm. Uh, as opposed to another kid who's maybe coming in with a history of depression, a history of, you know, um, either self-harm or suicide attempts or, you know, whatever that might be, or just, yeah. you know, really chaotic family structure or things like that. Um, um, I need to stabilize for a little bit longer mm. and kind of meet them where they're at. Um, so that's the stabilization piece. And then you move into the trauma narration and processing. And that's where um, the imaginal exposure comes in. That's where the processing of the thoughts, feelings, reactions to what has happened um, occurs. And so you're both looking for that exposure piece of desensitizing to the trauma experience. And again, a, a safe and calm place, body situation, all of that. Yeah. And learning to do that. And also then really looking for those negative alterations in, in cognitions and worldview, like where there may be um, some of those cognitive distortions, or if it's been going on for a while, even some core beliefs that have developed, you know, that mm. are not how we really that are trauma based and we want to focus in on. So you help them kind of process through all of that. Um, and then they actually share with the caregiver when appropriate. Um, Cause we always want like throughout this whole process, we want a supportive caregiver to be involved. They're also getting all of the PRAC information. Um, they're going to go through the narrative with you so that they're not hearing it for the first time with their kiddo. And then they're going to share and provide that kind of supportive piece. Um, and then you sort of start to transition them out with, you know, really looking towards the future and dealing with safety or any kind of leftover. Maybe you need to do some actual in vivo exposure therapy if like, you know, if it were a kid in a car accident, which is, um, you know, you might have them slowly work up to getting back in that car if, you know, uh -huh. the the imaginal exposure wasn't working. So, um, so things like that um, before they transition out. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Um, yeah, mostly. No, thank so you for that very thorough uh, definition and explanation. Um, that's very helpful. Uh, my question is, uh, if you are given let's say a maximum of 20 sessions by like top down, but you as the clinician are like, uh, I've gone through a certain amount of steps or maybe all the steps, but I don't know that the child is ready to terminate. Um, can you request for more sessions with the, with the client or. So that's a really good question. And I am not the best person to ask that of because okay. we, um, again, as a child advocacy center, part of our accreditation is that we never have to turn a family or a kid away oh. due to payment. So uh -huh. we do bill insurance when possible, but we also operate off of grants. Huh. Um, and so at that point, if they're not progressing through um, the way that we might more typically see, and again, that's a, that's a pretty wide range. You know, yeah. we're not saying you have to be done within like one or two sessions. Like yeah. there's, there's a little bit of a range there. Um, I don't have to worry about the billing side of it. So I can see a kid as long as I need to. At, at that point, it comes down more to, are we still doing TFCBT at that uh -huh. point? If we're really not making progress, is there something that I'm missing? You know, like a puzzle piece that I haven't quite figured out that um, maybe it's a, 
uh, you know, they haven't actually talked about everything, even though they told me that they have, or mm. they're having this just really stuck cognitive distortion, or there's something going on at home that I haven't been made aware of. Mm. Um, or is this maybe just not the right time? Or is this, you know, even though we know TF is highly effective, that doesn't mean that it is 100% going to work for 100% of kids every time. Uh -huh. So that as you get, you know, creep up into like higher, higher sessions, you're starting to look at, is this the best fit? Am I missing something? Do they need an adjunctive service? Do they need some management? Maybe they're just like so physiologically agitated all the time that like mm. they need something to kind of help them come down and like reprocess through whatever's going on. Um, Cause you know, if they're processing everything and continuing to have those huge like stress responses, they're not coming back down. Yeah. Um, the way we want them to. So there's just a lot of different questions you might ask at that point yeah. of what they might need. Does TFCBT, can you use it with adults too? So it's just for three to 18. Um, we will sometimes see, um, that's just what the evidence base is. Uh -huh. And just the way, like all of the materials, all the way that you're explaining things, um, it is just kind of focused to be, there should be a caregiver involved, like all of those things. Yeah. Um, but I mean, at its core, it's, CBT with someone who knows about trauma, yeah. but at that point you might just be doing more like cognitive CPT? behavior. Well, oh. CPT is very specific um, as well. That's a very manualized treatment. Okay. Um, so you wouldn't be going super manualized at that point. Um, mm. You might just be doing more like CBT um, again with that trauma focus. But. Yeah. Okay. Um, this might be a good time to transition. So I was going to thinking about compassion fatigue and burnout mm -hmm. um and you working with this population mm -hmm. how yeah i'm trying to think of a good segue so working with this population uh and seeing a lot of this trauma and I, i'm sure there's a lot of um especially with the children that you maybe can't help or that you see kind of slip through the cracks mm -hmm. how you process that and what has your training in compassion fatigue and burnout and related areas how has that kind of helped you mm -hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, that is a wide, wide. broad question <laughs> yeah. i'm yeah. just gonna dive in and you let you you let me know if i made okay. it um yeah and i think it, exactly as you were sort of saying like my choice to work in this field is definitely what exposed me then to all of this there's so many different kind of terminologies for it, you know, whether that's secondary traumatic stress or compassion fatigue, or there's kind of a push to move from compassion fatigue to empathic strain, um, kind of that terminology, of, you know, burnout, all of those different things, um, working in a just trauma saturated environment, um, you kind of can't ignore those things. And so, <clears throat> although I did, I really didn't know much about it when I first started. And then I just got, had a really cool opportunity uh, I may have actually still been a fellow here. It was during my first, maybe my second year while I was here Okay. that they brought in a psychologist named Eric Gentry, and he's been doing um, compassion fatigue work for decades. Um, and so he came for a two day conference up in Charlottesville um, and, and walked us through uh, at the time, he just kind of called it professional resilience, but I think now it's called like forward facing professional resilience training or something like that. Okay. Um, so he has this whole program that he walks helping professionals through, whether you're a counselor or a um, yeah, child protective services worker or an ER doc or veterans or, you know, things like that. Hmm. We're um, basically anyone who through their occupation 
is exposed to some sort of trauma on a regular basis mm -hmm. um, in some capacity. Um, you know, he I kind of created this program for that to help address that. And so going through that was huge. It was just two days of like, oh my goodness, <laughs> like, this <laughs> makes so much sense. Uh, and none of it's rocket science. Like half of it is stuff that we do with our clients anyway. It's just, mm. you know, they say doctors are the worst patients, <laughs> therapists are the worst clients. And so, um, but it, it just was, it was really, I think, again, it was like kind of that psycho ed piece of it's very valid to be like, okay, I, I um, this is speaking to me. Like I have experienced some of these things. I had experienced all of it, you know, but, but yeah. some, um, and so just to kind of understand where some of that may have been coming from, where some of my reactions, some of my internal and physiological experiences and things might've been, um, stemming from and, uh, to work through that and then start to implement some of those, the, some of those strategies that he went through, um, was, was really good. Um, mm. it was definitely very helpful. And so that just got me interested, I think, in that, general area um that we work in a field where we just don't take care of ourselves very well and now that has like exploded in the psychology world of you know compassion fatigue empathic strain uh, secondary traumatic stress all of that is just huge right now and so there's just so much information out there hmm. um but that's good like there there yeah. needs to be if we want to continue to maintain people in these helping professions and not have serious you know, negative side effects. And I, I think being cautious too, that you can do this work and, and, um, and have a fulfilling career in it. Um, but I do think like we need to take care of ourselves in that process. So, yeah, I, I would, I would hope that before long, anyone who enters that type of field, like the field that you're in, or if you're going to be a police officer or firefighter or whatever it is that kind of like orientation or the beginning stages, there's kind of a mm -hmm. training on compassion fatigue or secondary traumatic stress or burnout or, yeah. and how to protect against it. And yeah. Yeah. So can you um, maybe talk to some of the ways that we can, let's see, some of the ways that us as therapists mm -hmm. can protect against that? Yeah. Oh man. There's like so many different again, right now there's just an explosion in the field. So, um, I guess just off, maybe to start, there's just some things you could look into, um, uh -huh. okay. you know, so some general, uh, resources. And so one, um, type of, you know, the, I think I mentioned the Eric Gentry, like forward facing professional resilience, you can do an actual training or there's also online trainings or there are workbooks that you can just buy and like, you know, work through yourself. And they're very thorough. And, and, um, especially if you're in a graduate program, um, it's going to be something you can kind of do on your own. Hopefully you would get the support of your supervisor, you know, things like that. Um, as well. So you can do that. There's also um, TEND Academy. So TEND Academy is based out of Canada. Uh, and I apologize in advance to the creator because I don't know how to pronounce her name, but it's like Francois Mathieu, I think, or something. Um, and so she has a whole agency that's just dedicated wellness for helping professionals and uh, has a ton of resources on their website, has a lot of trainings that you can um, can go to, or again, just start to download some of their resources and look through them yourself. Um, there's also, can't remember what the acronym stands for off the top of my head, but it's the C-CERT model by Brian Miller. And so that is very clinician focused. It is very much made for clinicians in the helping professions um, to make sure that you can do the work you do and stay well. And so that is, um, uh, train again, a training that you can go through and it comes with like a workbook and a manual and things like that. Okay. 
I haven't done that one. Um, for those of us doing TFCBT, um, one of the creators of TFCBT, Esther Devinger, is um, creating uh, kind of a parallel process um, with that we can go through with our clients to again ensure wellness. So it's called practice what you preach. Um, and so it uses that practice acronym and like has you work through um, all the different phases of TFCBT basically, but as the helping professional. Oh, and cool. So it's kind of been rolled out. There's an article that you can kind of read about it. Um, so if you're a TF provider, that's been really cool. I got to go through her little training and it was really neat. Um, and then there's the secondary traumatic stress consortium. It's just people from all over the country. Some of whom I've already named who work in this field, who do deal with secondary traumatic stress at like, uh, in different fields, you know, some are child advocate center focused, some are just helping professionals in general, all of that. And they've created again, like a website with resources of just all the different like things that you can start to read and look into and do. Um, so that secondary traumatic stress consortium is a super um, good resource for that. Um, I'm trying to think if there's just any other like specific resources, but there's just a lot. So those yeah. are probably really good places to start. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so all of them have like a little bit different, you know, there's a ton of overlap, um, but they also have some different elements to it. So I think when I did the training um, at, at Regent, I tried to synthesize that again, not in a um, research protocol kind of way, but when I was looking through it, you know, I think a big piece to start off with um, if you're new to the field or in the field and haven't done this, you know, um, work before to make sure you're well, um, is to just start with knowledge. So starting to look at what is secondary traumatic stress, what is compassion fatigue, what is burnout, what is, you know, all these, and, you know, empathic strain, um, what do those mean? What does that look like? How would that be potentially playing out in my day to day? And there's, you know, different, um, free uh kind of measures that you can take to see am i experiencing the different elements of compassion fatigue empathic strain like all of that kind of stuff so you can kind of start to just increase your awareness um and do some like self-assessment self-reflection to say you know where am i at with this um yeah i think a big piece of that that i'm a big fan of too is is um looking at like your window of tolerance. So there's a lot of information on that out there and TEND has like a really good video and resources about it. Um, but when we're experiencing compassion fatigue, secondary traumatic stress, things like that, we're kind of um, uh, closing our window of tolerance. And so starting to learn, so that window of tolerance is if something bad happens, um, I have the resources, you know, cognitive space, emotional space, um, all of that to, to handle it in a calm, in a calm way. And uh, the wider that window is, you know, the more that we're taking care of ourselves, the more that we're making sure like our stress response is low, um, all of that, then we're going to be able to take on some of these difficult things that we hear every day. Um, and just easier. As that starts to close, that's when we kind of, you know, tend to go into experiencing these symptoms of, of these different, you know, burnout, uh, secondary traumatic stress, things like that. And so I think just really looking at how does this apply to me specifically, so I can be really proactive and recognizing when I'm, my window is closing or, you know, I, I'm having some trouble. Yeah. So knowledge is a big piece for that first one. I just talked a lot. So is there anything you want to follow up with that on before I keep going? No, you're good. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, knowledge is huge. Knowledge is, knowledge is power. Um, and so I think then a second piece um, 
is self-regulation. And so really looking at how do you self-regulate? And so self-regulation, again, there's a bunch of different definitions, but I usually think of it as, you know, how are you making sure um, that your prefrontal cortex stays on? You know, you're not going into fight, flight, or freeze when you're sitting with clients, when you're dealing with difficult uh, maybe multidisciplinary partners or families or things like that. So how are you making sure that you are staying um, in a calm body and a calm headspace um, so that you can think rationally, um, you know, make good decisions, kind of act within your value system, like how you would want to respond to things and, and probably, you know, have those higher order, you know, critical thinking, problem solving skills, all of that. So how do you self-regulate? And so that's a lot of that mindfulness, meditation, deep breathing, you know, body scans, um, things that just create like a calm, whatever creates calm for you. Mm, uh-huh. And so learning those things that work for you, because people have very strong opinions usually about self-regulation skills. So whether, <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm not going to do, you know, I'm not going to meditate for an hour every day. Well, we don't have to. And so, um, <laughs> you can you know, sit finding, at the beach. Yeah, you can sit at the beach and just take some deep breaths. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, there's just so many different ways to do it, right? And so, really finding what is the way that you want to do that and learning to do it in sessions. So, just mm. like we talk with our clients about when you're hearing really difficult material, you're wanting them to. Um, discuss that and process it and dig into it in a calm and regulated system, right? Otherwise Uh they're just reliving it over and over. Uh And we should be doing the same thing. Like as I'm taking that thing, my brain might be, if I'm escalated, it's going to be processing that as traumatic material. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where a lot of those symptoms come from. So those self-regulation skills need to be happening on a consistent basis, just like throughout our week, but also throughout our day Mm. so that you know, the goal being once you get home, you don't need an hour or two to decompress. You get home and you're like, okay, I can most of the time just go on with my night now and live, you know, be present for whatever it is that I need to be present for. Um, So that's a huge one. And I think a lot of, a lot of the uh, programs would put a big emphasis on that. Um, And a lot of that has to do with like movement and stuff too. So like making sure that you're getting going for your walks, doing your workouts and things like that, yeah. whatever movement looks like for you. Um, <laughs> but that just helps our bodies and our brains to regulate a lot better. So, mm. so that's a big one. Um, so starting to learn, how do I do that? Uh, what works for me? Another big piece is re- reflective supervision. And so whether you're a student or licensed and out there in the world, making sure that you have your professional people that you can go to and process these things about. Um, And so if you're a student, obviously you also um, are revision to just staff cases and and make sure you have your interventions planned and you know what's going on with your client and you're conceptualizing and all of that and that's super important and you also want to make sure that that reflective supervision piece is there of and so you know what was your experience in the room how are you doing after this session um how did your emotions you know body thoughts react when you heard this piece of material or Mm, um those kinds of things and so you really want someone who's going to help you check in on that in some weeks that might be no I actually am like this week's fine I'm good um and other weeks you might need to dig into that a little bit more on you know again from a you want those professional boundaries but that's part of being a helping professional is that we're going to have emotions we're going to have responses and we need to deal with those um and so um 
having your people. And again, if you have a built-in supervisor, great. If they don't do that, find yourself someone that you can do that with. You know, if you're a licensed person and maybe don't have that supervision anymore, finding kind of your peer people that you're really and like being intentional about, Hey, this is what I'm trying to do. These are the things they might need to stay healthy. Like, mm-hmm. can we set up this system where if something is just really, you know, bothering me, I can give you a call. And there's all kinds of stuff out there too, on like low impact debriefing. So making sure that as you're debriefing, you're doing it in a way that's not adding to the other person, um, <laughs> and maybe their own reactions. So also, you know, learning how to do that low impact debriefing and what's that difference between just like, um, kind of word vomiting all over the person and yeah. actually like processing well. And again, as therapists, that's what we're trained to do in the therapy room, but we're not always great at doing it in our <laughs> own lives. So yeah. um, at uh, reflective supervision and kind of connection piece is huge too. Hmm. And so with that connection piece is also just like connection in general, both professionally and personally, but you know, a lot of healing, learning, self-reflection comes from relationships. And so we really want to make sure that we are connected, even if it's just to a couple of good people in our lives, you know, just making sure that um, we have those connections. Um, And then also uh, like meaning making and intentionality. So being really specific about why do I do what I do? Um, What am I getting out of this? Uh, Because, you know, as helpers, we tend to give more and more of ourselves um, away than maybe we should sometimes. Um, and, you know, we want to say we do it to just help and we want to be altruistic and, and that's great. But look, at the end of the day, if all you're doing is giving, you know, uh-huh. we're kidding ourselves if we don't like also get some sort of satisfaction after that, um, out of that. Mm-hmm. And so really thinking about what purpose for this, you know, why did I choose to be in this? What kind of um, at the end of the week, um, if X, Y, and Z happened, that would be a good week for me. Like I got what I wanted to this week. I got the meaning and the purpose that I needed to out of my job this week. Mm. Um, and so just really, and you know, some, uh, there's a lot of things out there about like writing an actual like mission statement of like, this is why I do this. This is why it's important to me. These are my values. Like this is how I want to show up and present every day when I'm at work. So it's really important that I am compassionate, respectful, um, uh, you know, whatever, whatever those sort of, you know, there's a, you can find big long lists of like, whatever. Yeah core values and things like that. Um, And so really writing those out so that because burnout, trauma, compassion, fatigue, secondary traumatic stress, all of that kind of pull you away from those like core values and your Mm. mission and your purpose and things like that. So you need an anchor to kind of connect to. And so knowing what those anchors are, are also really important um, to kind of staying on that course um, before you realize like, oh, I'm clear over here and acting totally outside of, <laughs> of, of my value, my purpose or things like that. And that's where like, you can start to maybe dabble in some like being a little unethical or, you know, or, or things like that without mm-hmm. even realizing it. If you're not really intentional and purposeful um, about why you're doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so like for me, one of my warnings out of I'm, I'm not debriefing. I'm not decompressing the way that I need to is I get irritable. And so one of my values is to be really compassionate. And if I'm irritable with my clients, it's not very compassionate. (laughs) And so, um, you know, for me, I really need to like, when I start to notice that, like, Ooh, that is definitely living outside my values. That is not the kind of therapist that I would want to be. Mm. And, um, also that's my warning sign that like, okay, this isn't how I normally am. This is a normal presentation. Uh, there's something I got to like dig into, like whatever that might be. Um, 
So. Yeah. I, 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 um, I've heard a lot about, and I've read about writing out a vision, um, writing out exactly, like you said, who it is that you want to be, how do you want to conduct yourself? Cause it's not enough to just tell yourself, this is what I don't want to be. Um, but you have to, you have to, you can't just be aiming away from something. You have to be aiming towards something. Yes, and yes. I really, I really like that, uh, concept and how it, applies and how it can I, i've never i don't think i've ever conceptualized it in a way of a productive factor against burnout or compassion fatigue mm -hmm. um but i really like that yeah yeah can you say the way you just phrased that again you can't just be yeah um aiming away yeah you can't just aim away from something you have to have something you're aiming toward yeah yeah, that's so true. We're really good at being like, I don't want this or I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> but what do I want? What, what am I focused in on? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's good. Very true. But yeah, that's a huge protective factor. So mm. you do that and, you know, it's one, one big check on the professional resilience to-do list for sure. I think we have about two minutes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks for that summary. That was very helpful. Uh, I wanted to ask, you asked me uh, what I liked about working with children. What is it that you like about working with your population? Mm, yeah. Okay. I'm going to start big and funnel down. Okay. Uh, so I love psychology in general because it sort of fits to like, um, like both sides of my brain. Right. Uh -huh. And so there's like the analytical part, cause we get to do assessment and diagnosing and like conceptualization and like figuring out what's going on. Right. Mm. Um, and so I love that more like analytical problem solving, like, let's figure this out. Like when a case comes to me and they're like, they've seen like 10 people and we don't know what's going on. I'm like, yes, bring yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can do it or not, yeah. but I'm going to try. <laughs> um, and so that's really cool. Um, but then it has that relational piece, right? Like you get to sit with people and build relationships. And I'm a big fan of the one-on-one. -on -one, so this has been cool. And uh, uh, just like really sit with people as they live their lives. Um, and that's a huge honor. And so I love that it like plays to both of those, you know? Um, and so that I like working um, with the populations that I work with and in the setting that I work with one what I mentioned earlier that we never turn anybody away. Um, so I just think behavioral, well, healthcare disparities in general are just wild. And so to be able to be a part of a system where that doesn't have to come into play, or mm. I mean, we always have to be thinking about where, the, where there might be disparities, but it comes into blessed if we can offer care to everyone at the same level. Right. Uh -huh. And so I really like that. And so that's why I really like the actual like setting that I'm in. And then working with, with kids and families, because I love to see, again, that relational piece of like, mm. we're rebuilding relationships. And I actually get to see that, you know, um, as opposed to sitting with an adult and like, of course, relationships are important in their life as well, but I don't get to see that play out in my therapy room. Right. <laughs> I get to see that with kids. Um, and I like working with kids because you get to be, um, you get to be creative. You get to do a lot of the things that maybe I with, with adults, but like I get to color sometimes, or I get to do art, or I get to play games, or you know, and and so and that's also kind of that more creative piece of like how do I take this like man like you know psychological theory and all of these things that um, and apply them and like really make sure that this kid understands it and can utilize it and things like that. So 
Um, I don't know. There's so many good things about it. I guess maybe I'd probably have like five other answers if you asked me. On a yeah. day, but those are some of the bigger ones. It's just fun. Yeah. When I, my first impression, when you came to speak, uh, you're very jubilant and like you have an uplifting personality. So I just imagine you're very good at working with children and they love you. So that's oh, good. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really kind. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing quick, if that's okay. Okay. Um, Because we've talked a lot about as an individual, like what you can do. Um, There's a million other things we could talk about with that. But I think um, I don't want to kind of give organizations an out when we talk Mm. about what can you do as an individual. Um, Also, a lot of professional resilience and dealing with secondary traumatic stress or compassion fatigue, you have to work in an organization that prioritizes your wealth as well. And so kind of like speaking to what you were saying that um, looking for places that are going to train you in that, that are going to help you with that, that knowledge and resources and support um, is also just so, so important because you can do all of these things. And if you're working in a system that is not trauma informed or is not prioritizing that, there's only so much you can do. So you really need both. Um, That's a very good look point. For that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay. Dr. Ternus, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, of course. Really enjoyed Thanks it. for having me. You too. Yeah.